Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, it's all about care and feeding of your next African adventure as veteran photo safari leader Andy Biggs, along with traveler Doug Kay, join Alex Lindsay and I to talk about the do's and don'ts of travel photography. All that and more coming your way right now on episode number 153 of This Week in Photography. And we're back for another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, something a little different. Uh, we've got a couple of people on the show that, and that uh, have been around the world in terms of traveling and have some varied experiences with regard to what to and what not to do when you're when you're in places that you're not familiar with. So let's just start with a, we'll run down the list and talk to uh, the folks that are, that have joined us. First up is Doug K. Hey, Doug, how are you doing? Hey, good, Frederick. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to, to come on the show today. So but, but I'm going to introduce the rest of the folks, but I want to, uh, we'll, we'll kick off with a quick chat with you after that, uh, kind of to get an understanding of what you do and why you love photography and all that stuff. So, okay. Uh, next up is a guy who was on the show a while back and is now back from parts unknown again to join us, Mr. Andy Biggs. Hey, Andy. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Man, I'm good. It's Monday. Right. <laughs> you sound like you got your coffee in your hand, your slippers on. <laughs> oh, you know it. You know it. <laughs> awesome. And then, of course, our other co-host there, uh, Mr. Alex Lindsay, who's also the world traveler and brings a lot to this discussion as well. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Hey, it's good to be back. It's good to have you back. You uh, you were hanging out in Africa for a while, correct? Five weeks. Five weeks in Africa. Wow. Yeah. That's it awesome. was great. So I'm sure you have stories to tell, and we'll get into some of those in this episode. But before we do that, Alex, you want to give the folks a, uh, a or give our sponsors a quick nod? Sure. Yeah. This, uh, of course, we are uh, supported. We'd like to thank our uh, thank our sponsors, uh, Squarespace.com. Squarespace, of course, is an easy and quick way for you to uh, build your website. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they're trying to figure out how to put up their business website or their personal blog or their photo blog in our in our respect and uh and, and it's just it can be real you know real difficult to try to get all that stuff uh, put together quickly uh you don't know how to code you don't know how to put that stuff up you don't know how to install it on the server you don't have to know how to move it from one server to another all these things are things that you don't want to have to actually deal with if you don't have to you're an artist or you're a business person and so what squarespace does is get that all out of your way so what you can actually do is uh, you know go up there you can you can build it you don't even need to put a credit card in uh you just simply go up to squarespace.com slash twip and uh, if you go up there, you can um, actually, uh, you know, get up there and, and, and without a credit card, start building your website, see if it's easy. Uh, it's all WYSIWYG. So it's, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. You simply can kind of build stuff out, uh, put it together quickly. Uh, it's all, you don't have to worry about the server. It's all set up there. So it's just, uh, you know, it's something that, um, you know, my personal blog, bordersack.com, uh, 
is um, uh, is is on there, and I just. You know, I, I just don't have the time to figure this stuff out. You know, I don't have time to figure out the web. <laughs> you know, like like for my own personal stuff, you know, and, and everything else. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time learning HTML or code or – I don't want to know anything about servers. So, I, you know, that's why I put my stuff onto, uh, onto Squarespace and I'm, uh, I'm super happy with it. So you get so, back to the business of being a photographer and a media creator rather than a system administrator, right? And I can – yeah, I can spew my, uh, my crazy uh, – theories and, and everything else out there and, and I don't have to you know think about how what kind of code is required to uh, to talk about those things and so um, so it's just really if you're trying to think about think about how you're going to get your blog or your photo gallery or all those other things up to up to speed uh, definitely check it out you can go to squarespace.com slash twip and if you sign up if you decide that this is something you want you can get 10% off by using the uh, the coupon code twip t-w-i-p so um, definitely check it out uh, and uh, and see if it works for you Awesome. All right, Alex. Thanks a lot. Okay, before we kick off, uh, Doug, I wanted to chat with you since you're brand new to This Week in Photography. Um, again, thanks for coming on. Can you give us a little uh, background of, of kind of why you love photography and, and what draws you to the medium? Yeah, I've, oh, I've been a longtime listener to TWIP, so it's uh, fun to be here. And it's uh, it's also challenging to be on a, a podcast where I am a relative newbie as opposed to an expert in something. <laughs> but uh, after, I've you know, had a long experience in the motion picture business, and uh, uh, I was in still photography in the film days. And I basically left photography for 20 years uh, to run a software company. And... Then I was using my wife's point-and-shoot for a couple of years, her digital point-and-shoot. And then finally, just a few years ago, I said, I really got to get back into this. Uh, and uh, Santa Claus brought me a, a D90 for a Christmas present. And uh, I started collecting lenses. And uh, I have been getting back into it for about the last two years. So TWIP's one of my resources. And um, uh, I had the chance to go to Africa, which is sort of the genesis of the show here. And... Um, I uh, had a great time. Learned a tremendous amount, and I hope to learn a lot more today. Where'd you go? Where'd you go in Africa? Uh, spent three weeks in Kenya. You know, from mm. the, you know, you know the areas there, both of you do. But from uh, but from <laughs> Savo over to uh, all the way over to uh, Masai Mara. Oh, very That's good. awesome. You know, I got to say, you know, I got to put it out there. It feels a little weird being the only African American on this show right now that has not been to Africa. All there three you go. <laughs> <laughs> All three of right. you guys have been there multiple times, and I haven't been there one time. So I gotta- we're, I, I'm, we're, we're working on that. We're, we're going we're to drag you down there. Yes. It's a white guy safari. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, somehow I feel like I fit in, so I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then also, uh, Andy Biggs, you've been on the show before. And since, the, since last we spoke, I've been checking out your blog. I know you've been back out of or been out of the country at least one time you want to tell us give us a quick synopsis of your adventures since then yeah i'm trying to think when was i on the show last was it december january something like that yeah yeah it was it was around that. i think it might have been january I yeah I, I so i've um i've been to tanzania for almost a month the month of february during the the wildebeest migration uh when the calving season occurs and then i've also i, I had a private yacht in the galapagos for a uh, workshop uh, last month for a week. That was fun. On the Galapagos. Oh, that's on my list yeah. of places to go before I check out. That's uh did you uh did you see any species or did you discover any new species out there? <laughs> no, no, but I burned a lot of pixels, that's for sure. I bet, I bet. <laughs> Awesome. And then, of course, Alex, uh, you've been on the show every, almost every other show except for the last couple of weeks because you have been in Africa again. Yeah, so, so I, what I, were you doing? Uh, 
I was well. Uh, I do a mixture of training and uh, meetings. Uh, one of the big things that we're trying to do is find ways to use media development as an economic stimulus in uh, a variety of areas in Africa, uh, everywhere from um, areas in you know of, uh, underserved in South Africa to Zimbabwe, Rwanda, Tanzania. Kenya, uh, Uganda, these are all, and Zambia, these are all countries that uh, I was in over the last, uh, well, not Uganda this, this last trip, but before. And um, so I have, you know, uh, I was kind of touring about doing a mixture of training uh, and a mixture of meetings and really seeing, you know, how we can uh, use media development for that. And so, and in the middle of all of that, of course, uh, took a ton of photos <laughs> and uh, yeah, burned up, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, it wasn't as, it wasn't as heavy as I thought. I think I, I shot about um, over five weeks, you know, because I was busy doing other things, I think I shot about 600 gigs of uh, five or 600 gigs of, of photos, which wasn't as, as much as I had kind of braced for. Um, but I had kind of built, you know, I, I had kind of calculated I'd do eight, eight to 900 gigs when I left. Jeez. And so I kind of built my system around that. So I, I ran a little lighter than that, which was fine. And I uh, still got a lot of great photos and, uh, and learned a lot about how, you know, you know, you just have to worry about, you know, how you're backing stuff up and how you're doing that kind of stuff as well so it was a it was a fun it's it's always i think all of us can attest to when you do these travel gigs and you're really worried about the content you know you they're all a learning experience of how you're going to you know manage both your hardware and your data uh on an ongoing basis yeah so let's <clears throat> let's 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 talk about this a little bit so this show of course is uh is going to be centered around just safari type photography and things to do while you're 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 out in the out and about you know outside the United States in general and in in particular um, on a safari. So, uh, Doug, you you said you mentioned that you were in Africa. So, what kind of things did you were you thinking of when you you know the night before when you're packing you know all your gear up and you're you're worried about forgetting that one thing that you weren't going to have access to? What what was your process for prepping for your trip? Yeah, well, at the night before, it's already too late, obviously. So, <laughs> so you know, I spent a good three months trying to figure this out because not only was I still relatively new to digital photography, but I'd never been to Africa. I'd never been to a safari. Um, so I spent all my time reading and listening and gathering stuff. Uh, we, we, ha- we were going on a trip with non-photographers. We weren't doing what Andy does, which is probably the best way to do it. We just happened to be taking a safari with a group of people. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that we were the only ones in our group. So we were, we didn't know if that was going to be good or bad, but we had a vehicle all to ourselves, which we can talk about later, which was, which was spectacular. I mean, because I had probably 30 pounds of gear. Um, but you know, I was worried about the lenses, a spare body, uh, dust, uh, you know, what to mount the camera on and everything. So we just, you know, just, I had to deal with everything. And there are tremendous online resources, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I could give you my equipment list, but no, it's, no. it was, it was really that, that for a newbie, it was the, the, the three months of research and planning that paid off. Now, did you do anything medical wise? Did you like, did you, did you make sure oh, that you were inoculated and all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I went and had, uh, everything from yellow fever to hepatitis A and B. You get malaria pills for 30 days. Uh, you get antibiotics as a spare. You get all this stuff. You can hear where I live. You can go to the county and they'll charge you hundreds and hundreds of dollars for this. Or in my case, I went to Kaiser and it was free. 
<laughs> now, now, Alex, you you and I talk all the time, and I remember you telling me that you actually contracted malaria once when you were on a trip. Didn't weren't the pills supposed to not you know help or stop that from happening? So, so um, now one of the things I can't say a hundred percent. In in retrospect, I talked to some folks about what all of it looked like, uh, and they were almost certain that I that what I had was malaria, which was uh, you know super high fever, and it was right after I came back from Africa, super high fever, joint pain, uh, you know del- delirium, you know all kinds of fun stuff that that comes with it. It's you know as as one of my friends in Kenya said, it's like the flu on steroids. So. Um, so the uh, and I you know I got something really really bad coming out of it. Now what I the other con- contributing factor to that was that I was um, not taking my malaria pills at the time because I was in Harare almost the entire time. And Harare, one of the things about these uh, cities is a lot of the reason that cities are where they are is because they might be like for instance in an area where mal- the malaria vector isn't as uh, prevalent. So so when you look at like a Harare, it's five thousand feet, so it, it's not a not a place where the type of mosquito that carries malaria, um, you know, uh, usually uh, um, uh, is around. And so you don't uh, – no one worries about it that much there. The problem was is that I went off into the bush a couple times. And uh, there was one time when I was in the bush getting eaten alive going, well, we're going to find out. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those things like I was just – there was a lot of mosquitoes. And it was in a place called Tenganenga, which is a – they make they have sculptors there. And so when I came back, you know, it was just a – you know, it was – some I got something very bad. And most people that I've talked to, uh, some physicians that deal with it in Africa said that it was – you know, if they if – because they, a lot of times, you know, you'll get malaria and they can't identify it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I went through it stupidly not treating anything not thinking that i just come back from africa i mean you know even though it was only two days after i just was in in the united states and a different thing and i if if i did get it it was one of there are you know severe versions of malaria and um and not so severe versions Mm -hmm. uh you know so you know and the severe versions you know will kill you you know (laughs) you know and uh and um the not so severe versions will just you know be like uncomfortable like flu on steroids and so um and so the uh uh, but it definitely made me a little bit more sensitive to, um, you know, taking those prophylactics. The, the issue you get into is if you're there for a long period of time, not a month, but if you're there, for, you know, a lot of people, you, you, you end up hanging around. People who live there don't take it every day. Well, most people I know don't take it every day. Um, and most of them just know what the treatments are. And then they get treated when, if they get it, you know. And I've talked to people who've had it 10 or 15 times, um, you know, and, and they get pretty blasé about it, uh, you know, um, after a while. And they say, well, you just take... Uh, it's a it's actually a, a Chinese herb um, that has become kind of the the treatment, the go to uh, medicine, the yeah. go to medicine. And, and a lot of people will have that around. I mean, everyone will have it in those areas. Uh, one thing that is useful is to um, get insurance. I tend to get health insurance that is specific to my trip. So you can you can have your general health insurance, but that's not going to do you any good when you get to Africa uh, or many other countries. And so what you can do is you can get emergency insurance, which can be both your stuff. Uh, it can also be life insurance, um, and it can also be health insurance. And some of the things that I look for in those areas is being able to be flown out. Um, you know, the health facilities in some of these uh, countries, you know, is not not particularly built up, and so. Uh, what you want as part of that service is to be able to know that if you if something bad happens and, and there's you know lots of bad things that can happen uh, uh, is that you'll get taken to someone an area that does have really good health facilities so if you're let's say in Zimbabwe you could be treated in Zimbabwe and some of the stuff is is okay there but what you really like is to be flown to you know Cape Town 
<laughs> you know, you know, if, if you get sick, you know, it's 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 one of those things that, uh, you know, if if you really get sick, you wanna you wanna try to get to a, a facility that's a little bit more robust. Right. Um, you know, in those areas. As far as the, the interesting thing about lo- yellow fever is an important one, not so much because I think you're going to get it, but because um, they're actually starting to ask for those little yellow. You get these little yellow things that say what you've been inoculated for, this little yellow card. And I literally have carried that thing around for 10 years, never thinking that anyone was ever going to ask me for it, going, this is stupid. I can't believe that I have to carry this around. You know, and when I came back in from Rwanda into uh, Tanzania on this last trip, they asked me for it. And I was like, wow, that's the first time. Hmm. And it was about to expire too. My yellow fever shot was, was going to expire in three weeks. So, so. And, Andy, so you, you, we've, <clears throat> we've heard from Doug. So Doug, Doug kind of in this, this particular conversation represents the, the recreational traveler. Alex goes to Africa on a regular basis for business, for pixel core type stuff. You're the only one in the show that takes folks to Africa um, as part of your business regularly, and which, and I guess the the side of the the good thing about that is you've been there and you've been through presumably all the things that people need to know, uh, you know, what to avoid and what to bring and all that. So, given what these what Alex and Doug have said, how how would you describe how to prepare to go on an adventure like this? That's a really good question. <clears throat> the first thing you need to do is is figure out what your weight restriction problems are on like bush plane flights. Um, like on my trips, we typically have a ton of weight allowance. Like in Southern Africa, typically on a Botswana trip, um, people typically have a weight restriction of around 20 kilos or 44 pounds. My trips are around 95 to 100 pounds. So, um, but still, that's still a weight restriction. So I don't want you to bring every, I don't want you to bring the, the kitchen sink. But you should you should know how to pack. Um, and of course, here's a little product plug. <laughs> That's why I started my camera bag company, Guru Gear, because I was so frustrated with with the weight problems of, of bags. Um, also, you need to look into your inoculation type um, uh, recommendations and requirements. Some countries require that that wonderful yellow card that that Alex was talking about. I've carried mine around for eight years, nine years now, and I've never even once been asked for it. But, that was the first time. That was the very first time yeah. I'd ever been asked for it after 10 yeah. years. And it's so ratty. It's so ratty yeah. looking. <laughs> totally. I, mean, I, I need to get mine laminated or something. But um, it just you should, you should know where you're going, what the typical temperature is going to be like. Be prepared for rain. Be prepared for dust. Have your inoculations taken care of. Typically, yellow fever is the minimum requirement for most countries. And sometimes hepatitis A and B um, could be... I mean, just a whole other concoction of, of shots or pills. But uh, East Africa is predominantly just yellow fever. And then malaria medication is, is pretty smart. I don't take it anymore uh, because I'm out there, let's just call it somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks out of the year. And that's a lot of time to kill my liver. Right. Yeah. That's and that's the issue. Is is yeah. you, start, you can't take this stuff all the time. And, and I talk to a lot of people there. And they're just like, you know, you're better off treating it. You know, if if you know you're better off treating it than you are um, just battering your body with all the with all those but, pills. Yeah, but you can you can do a lot of things to prevent the issue. So, typically, mosquitoes are going to be out um, at the edge of light, you know, sunrise and sunset. Mm-hmm. And just make sure you're wearing long pants and long sleeves and some sort of DEET or Picardin or Permethrin type um, and uh, some repellent, and just just be smart about it. Um, Andy, Andy, do you use the repellent uh, infused clothing? I do, but I 
do it myself. So I don't like uh, certain types of like ex officio shirts, their buzz off mm-hmm. series. They just don't fit me very well. So right. I I wear clothes from Cool K U H L out of Utah. Mm-hmm. I love their clothes, their safari clothes, and so I just. I, I I do my own. I spray yeah. it. I did a, a I would sort of did the over prepared new guy thing. We use DEET, of course, every day. DEET is a nasty chemical, but it really works in terms of keeping the bugs off. Um, we sprayed our clothing ahead of time, and that lasts for enough washes that it'll make it through a trip. And I think you know we the two of us got very few bites of any kind. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the, the DEET is the, – it's important for people to know that DEET is actually much more effective than malarone or, or larium as far as not getting malaria. Because you know, yeah. those are just those are just prophylactics, and, and you're going to get bit, and, and they have some percentage. In fact, one of the problems that you also get into when you start taking that stuff is that it masks the, the symptoms. So when they do a blood test, they won't know whether you have malaria or not. Mm. And so uh, specifically with malarone. And so um, – and larium makes 10 percent of the people crazy. Yeah, DEET de- is the real secret there. I mean, yeah. you, you, yeah. either, and nothing else works as well. So, well, Andy, you know what I found though? Go ahead, Andy. I'm saying I was, uh, what I've learned is that certain DEET products are better than others, not in how effective they are, but how much oil they put in the vehicle. Hmm. So, for example, um, some stuff that's sold by REI under the house brand – it's just it's just so oily that you can barely even use it because once you get it on your hands and it's all over your cameras, then it melts the plastic on your cameras and other products that you spray it and it's got um, an evaporative quality that the the oil isn't lingering behind. So mm. a DEET isn't a DEET isn't a DEET. Yeah. Which one do you use? That's a really good question. <laughs> that was going to be my question. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even tell you. I don't know. I've got a I've got a duffel. You're gonna laugh, but I've got a duffel bag in Tanzania. Like with a tripod, a gimbal head, some uh, a video head, and some other equipment, uh, light uh, like flash brackets, uh, just tons of equipment as well as DEET just sitting there. So I haven't bought DEET in a, quite a while because yeah, I just don't what, use so much of it. One of the questions that I had going in, I had no idea how much to take because you don't know how how it's going to go on. It turned out that one of these tubes, which is probably about two ounces, was enough to go three weeks. Well, and the other thing to remember is that when you're flying around, especially when you're leaving the United States and, and you're going through Europe and everything else, is that two ounces is the rule. You know, like you don't want to take anything that has fluid or or anything else that's bigger than two ounces because then you have to deal right. with if you're gonna if you're gonna check if you're gonna carry it on. Mm-hmm. And I always operate like I'm gonna carry on. Yeah, the fact is though that one of those tubes is enough to take a person through through three weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I came back with a lot of extra deed if anybody wants some. <laughs> Andy, what do you, so back to the question I asked Doug at the beginning, what you, the night before or say the week before, if a photographer is planning on, on just saying, you know what, I'm taking some time off, I'm going to Africa, um, and I'm going to take some great pictures, is it that easy? Can they just you know pack their bag the night before and uh, jump on a plane and go and start shooting? And if not, what should they be, what should they be cognizant of? It's a good question. I've got, a, I've got a, a suggested packing list that I send to all of my customers. And I'd be happy to send it to all the listeners of the of this podcast. Oh, that'd be great, yeah. Yeah, but basically I have it separated into one Excel spreadsheet is here. here's all the photographic gear that I take. And another tab is here's all the clothing and toiletries kind of stuff. And it's actually fairly simple. I mean, most safaris are going to uh, – locations, the accommodations, they're going to do laundry for you. Hmm. And so you, you don't need to overpack clothes. You need enough clothes for about three days max. And then well, – uh, like every two days, get your wash done, and you're wearing the clean, clear, uh, clean pair of clothes when you're out during the day, and give them two or three days worth to clean. 
Okay. It's, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. that everywhere in Africa, even whether you're not in a safari, whether you're in a hotel, whether you're in uh, – and it's generally inexpensive. And, if you know, I stay at a lot of friends' house, and most of the time they have people that are doing that. <laughs> That's so, really interesting. So you travel, you pack for three days, and you're, you're going to get two days' worth of laundry done. That doesn't happen here. If I, if I go someplace and I'm going to be there for a week, I've got to bring a week's worth of clothing you know, and, or plan to go find a laundromat well, or something. So well, look at this way. Look at it this way. This is an income opportunity for people okay, <laughs> to do your laundry. So yeah. I'm happy to give them income. <laughs> Well, and the other thing is, is that is that the uh, I, uh, I I almost all my clothes, and it, it slowly just keeps on getting battery. Now, I every time I go, I travel, I take less and less cotton. You know, so you know my my clothes tend to become more and more of uh, some kind of synthetic fiber, like which I don't wear think, type stuff. Yeah, just stuff that gr- that dries really fast. And and I will, you know, I have I have these little packets of woolite that I have that I that if I'm if I'm in a hotel and I don't feel like having somebody else do it, I I, I literally will just wash it in my sink. And uh, hang it up, and the next day it's you know it's dry, ready to go. I'm, I must have gone on a real budget thing then, because I didn't have anybody to do my laundry. I did it all, so we uh, we were doing laundry in uh, in the sink. Uh, I would say every second or third night. Uh, but but I'll echo the clothing thing that Alex mentioned. We ended up with you know sort of travel clothes, travel underwear, travel shirts, things like that. Uh, I ended up. One of the things that surprised me was the temperature, having never been to Africa. Here we are uh, going back and forth across the equator a few times uh, in the middle of November at 5,000 feet, and it was everywhere from very hot to very cold. Well, and, so, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, and another thing is that it can get very hot and very cold. Like you, you have a, t- you have a bet. Uh, one thing that I've gotten ca- – I got caught in with shooting both in the Seychelles – and also in Africa is that you'll you have a tendency to turn the air conditioning on in your car, you know, while you're driving around, and you get out, and of course you're uh, in in the near the equator, your lenses will, uh, you know, they're cold, <laughs> and it gets hot, and sometimes it's not in a dry environment, it's in a, it's in a humid environment, and your lenses will uh, fog up real quick. And well, we had a, we had a better solution than that. We weren't anywhere near an air conditioner for three weeks. So, <laughs> well, there you go. That's, well, that, that's something that, that I didn't think that much about. And, yeah. of course, your smaller lenses will, will react much faster than your large lenses. Well, speaking, so, of, speaking of lenses, um, and I'll throw it to Andy because, you, you know, I'm sure you, you know exactly what to and what not to bring uh, to make sure that you're traveling light and fast. What, do you, what gear do you bring? I know, you know, of course, I'd bring my Kaboko bag. But what, there we go. What, yep. You know, which is one of your products. And uh, what, what else do you bring? What do you put in your Kaboko bag? That's, uh, so I always have a minimum of two SLRs. Um, the, the main two reasons why is that, number one, it's, it's an insurance policy to have a second camera in case your first one breaks. And the second is that it allows you to be ready for something with a different focal length where you don't have to change your lenses. I switched over from Canon to Nikon about a year and a half ago, and I use my, the 200-400 f4 as my main lens, and my second camera sits with a 70-200 to 200 ready to shoot next to me so so i always have at least two cameras but most of the time i actually have three um so i'll have something like a 24 to 70 on the third camera Mm -hmm. um so that that kind of um approach so numerous cameras i take enough lenses to keep me to to cover all the focal length bases but i don't bring all the specialist lenses i don't bring macros i don't bring tilt shifts i don't bring ultra wide angle like um like a like a fish eye or anything like that. I just literally bring a twenty four to seventy, seventy to two hundred, two hundred to four hundred, and a teleconverter. And uh, and of course, I pack the bag with other accessories like teleconverters, um, microfiber cloths, and other things to clean the gear. 
but um, that's really about it. I don't I don't overload myself. With, now, with- now Andy, I've, I've seen your site, andybigs.com, right? And yeah. and there's some amazing photography on there. Are you saying that the 24 to 70, the 70 to, to 200, and a 200 to 400 captured yeah. all that stuff? No, well, I think most of the shots on my website were taken with my old Canon equipment, but okay. back then I shot with a 24 to 105, a 100 to 400, and a 500 f4. That's it. Wow. You know, I think photographers, we have this real problem. It's that we think that the more gear we carry, the more we spend money on this gear, we have to use it, and that's going to bring us better photographs. Mm-hmm. And I, I one time I went on safari with a – uh, a pair of Canon D30s. This was back in 2002 uh, when I was switching to digital. So I had a pair of D30s, a 100 to 400. It was my longest lens. And to be honest, that was one of my most productive safaris ever. So we, we shouldn't be delusional to think that the more camera gear we take, the better our photographs are going to be. It's like chasing rainbows. You know, you can, <laughs> you're never going to get yeah. enough gear if you start chasing gear. Yeah, seriously. Now, Doug, what did you bring on your, on your trip? What was your basic kit? Well, my my rule was I had to get everything into my low pro bag, which is my my backpack that also holds my my laptop. So I ended up with my D ninety, you know, which is a crop sensor camera. I had a backup D forty that I found on eBay. So I'm going low end here compared to you guys. Uh, I rented the best thing I did was rented a seventy to two hundred f two eight from borrowlenses dot com, mm-hmm. and that was my main lens. But I also decided. So that's like a 300, obviously, on a full sensor. Um, because there's the majority of what you shoot in a place like this is you want long, 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 but not all the time. And I did get a 2X teleconverter, uh, which I used a lot except in low light. When, of course, you, you know, there are typically three drives a day, and the very early and the very late. Uh, there really wasn't enough light, so I had to pull the teleconverter off. I had the kit lens zoom. I had a wide angle I almost never used. Uh, I was almost always on that seventy to two hundred. Yeah. So, uh, Alex, you, now being being the guy that that travels there not specifically for photography, but you're you're going there on work and you you do photography when you can. How do you travel? Like for the for the in other words, for the business guy that's going there that wants to get some photography in, what what's their config? Um, well, the same thing. Well, as far as like uh, as far as camera gear, um, I took the Canon 5D uh, and almost took a second body, and then just decided I couldn't fit it. You know, like like a lot of it gets into. I, I'm pretty particular. In fact, it was a real. Uh, it, to me, it was a real uh, problem that I actually got to three bags where I couldn't carry everything on mm-hmm. because uh, I, I usually I try to keep everything, even if I'm gone for five, you know, whether it's one week or five weeks, I try to keep everything to carry on. And part of that is even if I have to check it, uh, I have a higher probability of like on a, on a puddle jumper, I have a, I have a higher probability of it ending up on the plane because you, you start getting into the habit of taking big suitcases and, and um, if push comes to shove, they wait for the next flight. So the um, uh, anyway, so the. Uh, I couldn't fit uh, everything in there, so I took a 5D uh, body, uh, and then I I keep my 50. I love my 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 really you know not really fast but faster 50, 1.4, 50 that I just I just kind of carry around, especially late night stuff. And the other thing is, is the lens is nice and small, so I can just throw it on there and take pictures. Um, then I did. Then I also did take a 24 to 70 uh, 2.8 and a 7200 2.8, and then the fourth lens that I carried. Um, was a was a fisheye it was the sigma 
uh, eight millimeter, which has got a hundred, you know, it's like a ball. You know, when you're using the five, the five D, it looks like a ball in the center. Yeah. And that's because one of the things I like to do when I'm out doing safari type stuff, or I'm out in the, in, in the middle of nowhere, is is shoot uh, panoramas. So with a, I have the, and I've talked about this in the past, but I've got a, you know, one of the um, the nodal ninja R ones, which literally attaches to the to that lens. It's really built for that lens. It attaches that lens, and the camera literally hangs off the lens, and you can take. Uh, uh, panorama very very quickly and easily the 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 rig that used to be this huge rig that you'd have to have a separate backpack for now fits into one of my pockets you know the little the little uh, mount mm-hmm. so I can throw that thing out there and pop off now if I want to do I was doing nine exposure um, nine exposure HDRs um, so it's nine exposures every direction um, and uh, it uh, it makes the uh, tends to make the, the the tour guide very uneasy because I want to get out of the car, right? And then I and then I want to move away from the car. And literally, he would he <laughs> he just and then of course it takes a little while. And I'm sitting there, you know. And and for those of you listening, the reason that he of course he's that he's worried is that I'm walking near the brush, and and so he stands literally behind me to make sure that a lion doesn't jump out and surprise us all. Yeah. And um and so the uh, uh um but the uh. It's a uh, so I, I that's something that I enjoy doing is doing these HDR panoramas, right? And so, so, you gotta so I took that, to, you got to bring the gear to support that. Right? Yeah, I, I really the reason I chose the five D, you know, because um, to take with me is because I could take it. I did not bring another video camera. Usually, I take I bring both video and still, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to just take the five D and shoot video with it as well. And so I was shooting it at the Harare International Festival for the Arts as well with a little tripod, and and I was able to just you know set it up. And, uh, you know, shoot some of the artists and, and so on and so forth as well and got great, great video content and surprisingly good audio. I was kind of surprised by that. But um, uh, anyway, so but those were all, um, you know, and then, you, you know, the HDRs were shot, were, are controlled with an extra device called a promo. One of the big problems with the Canon, in my opinion, is that Nikon has it way over the Canon when it comes to uh, with an Nikon nine exposures for a bracket is normal. Uh, cannons are limited to three, and uh, when you're doing HDRs outside, oh. it's not enough. So the Promote is this little extra thing that you can kind of attach to your camera and just set however many exposures you want and whatever distance you want between them and hit fire. And so, you you know, um, and I got pretty, by the end of the trip, it was really the first trip I had with it. And by the end of the trip, I got, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty good at it. And it's it's fun. So, Andy, um, so Alex mentioned sort of wandering away from the tour guide to get the get that shot. Have you uh, have you ever had the uh, uh, an instance where one of your customers wandered away from the group, you know, or in other words, you know, you left the camp with six people and came back with five or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Where's Joe? Where'd Joe go? (laughs) Yeah, professionally, I'm going to tell you. Heck no, that's never happened to me. No, uh, no. You know, but in all seriousness, you know, we're. You know, I'm in wildlife rich areas, and Alex is going to places that are more, you know, people rich places. Mm-hmm. So, wildlife rich places, by their very nature, it means there are no people. So, yeah. so, and which means we're in Land Rovers driving around. So, I'd have to lose an entire Land Rover of people, which has never happened. Well, what, by the way, when I was shooting this, this was this was in Makumi National Park. So this oh, was oh cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's where I was shooting some of the the panos. So, and, and then I shot some panos in. Rawaha. Ooh, beautiful uh, area. Where did you stay there? In Rawaha at the Fox Safari. Yeah. They have, they, they have they have some of the they have they have them all over. So they have they have one in Makumi, uh Rawaha, Kivu, 
keep the tea in some of the tea area. I just can't think of the name of it right now. But they've got they, and they're really nice. So, so guys, you know, I'm I'm hearing all this stuff, and every t- Andy, after I talked to you, I was like, I'm packing my bags tomorrow. I want to go. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm ready to go. But I'm thinking, how much does this cost? Like, Doug, Doug, what did you what did you end up paying for your for your adventure in terms of just sort of generally speaking, including the flight and all that? How much did it set you back? I I think I've blocked that all out, Roger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, we we had a particular problem, which was two days before the trip, my wife got very sick and couldn't fly, mm-hmm. and so we literally had to cancel our airfare. We had booked a discount deal on um, we were going to go Virgin Atlantic, and I guess we're going to go Virgin Atlantic to London and all the way to Nairobi, as I remember. We had to cancel and redo the flights, and it cost a fortune to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you better ask Andy about the cost because I really don't remember. So, Andy, uh, what what is it? What is it going to set you back? Just generally, I know it, it, it will it will vary depending on the time of year you want to go and a bunch of other factors. But generally, is it like, hey, if you want to have a good time on this, set aside ten grand or forget it? Is it that kind of proposition? You know, I, I would um, let, let me give you a little bit of background. So, mm-hmm. the the components of cost, the, all of them are kind of let's just call them variable. You can kind of pick and choose where you want to economize. But quality of accommodations, quality of the vehicles, quality of the guide or tour leader, how many people are in the vehicles, and how many bush plane flights you have to take between camps, uh, and number of days. So when you start looking at all those things, I run my safaris where I've only got one person per row of vehicles, which is very important if everybody on the trip's a photographer, and my trips are for photographers, so that's a true statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to places that are wildlife rich in the best seasons of the year. You can get better rates, what they call green season rates, uh, but the, the challenge with that is, let's say if it's uh, on a shoulder season where the grass is really tall and really green, or it's maybe really wet outside. That's kind of prevent where you go and how well you see things. So well, and also, also, Andy, isn't it that you that the, they don't need to get to the watering holes, and so it's just harder to find them. Yeah, yeah. So I prefer late dry season for East Africa, um, right before it starts to rain again. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in Tanzania, that would be your February into early March, um, and then into your September or August, September, October. There are two rainy seasons there. Um, in southern Africa, like Botswana, I prefer when the, the Okavango Delta has already flooded and it's starting to recede a little bit, but it's still sucked in all the wildlife, and the Mopani is really easy to see through, so the, all the grass isn't really tall. So that would be July through, I would say, September, October, and it starts to get fairly warm after that. But those are my preferable times of the year. Now, what about the – here's the other thing that that's on my mind um, – you know, me, like like many photographers that are listening, the gear that I have is, is kind of precious because, you know, it's like, oh, I finally got the 70 to 200 that I've been trying to save up for, for you know. So that kind of feel, and you, then you, you take it to a, a reasonably hostile location because you, it's unfamiliar, but you're taking your gear out there. How do you how do you make sure that you're going to come back with all your gear? What are, what are the steps that you can take to make sure that not only on the airlines, you know, but just in terms of just doing an inventory? What what are the what? And I'm going to throw this to you, Andy. What are the the best things that a photographer that's traveling abroad, whether it be Africa or any place else, can do to make sure that they actually come back with the same amount of gear that they left with? Well, let's talk about let's just let's just call that a best practice. So, mm-hmm. the, for me, the best practice 
with my gear is that I want to carry it all on board, all the most important pieces, the pieces that can break or are the most valuable. So that would be, you know, all my big lenses and my cameras, but maybe some of my batteries get checked in the luggage. Um, most of the airlines that I fly on, like KLM, South African Airways, um, they have restrictions that I, I pretty much hold to, but I may have to use like a photo vest to get on under their, their weight limit. Mm-hmm. So I want to carry all the stuff with me, all the big stuff. And I may have one change of clothes with me just in case my luggage doesn't show up. But as long as I have my camera gear, I'm happy because I can take photographs and I can feel clean later. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very low-maintenance guy. Um, I don't like to check my camera gear. I don't like the idea and concept of Pelican cases. I don't like putting big lenses into the middle of a duffel bag. I just That's just not me. Um, I'm a little more of a control freak with that. Um, I mean, I have a lot of money invested in lenses and cameras. Mm -hmm. So I need to make sure that it gets there and I'm able to earn my living by taking photographs. So you keep it as much of it as you can possibly keep with you on your person. You bet. But I don't bring – like when I – so I I carry my Guri Gear Kiboko bag with me with a small laptop sleeve uh, as my second carry-on because I don't don't believe the two really need to be mixed. but I don't, I don't carry things like um, all the accessories and all the battery chargers and all that stuff. I'll check that. I don't care. Because, yeah. you know, these batteries like a D3 or D3X or a 1DS Mark III, you know, those batteries will go for 2,000 shots. Yeah. I mean, that's just sick. And so when you've got three or four batteries like that, I can, I can go shooting for four, five, six days without having to actually recharge. Mm-hmm. And, and chances are that on one of my safaris with 10, 10 guests, 10 customers, maybe 14 customers, chances are that somebody else has a Nikon charger. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a good thing. So, Doug, uh, you, or Andy, not to, not to make this a commercial for, for your, your bags, which is I have one in front of me. Your, I have your Kaboko bag right here uh, and your company, Guri Gear. But it's appropriate that, that I ask this question. I want to have you answer it. So um, I'm looking at the bag, and I'm, I'm actually – I'm actually holding the bag up right now, and it's very, very light. Now, did you? What was what was your thought process behind creating this bag? Because I know you created it specifically for the folks that are doing the stuff that we're talking about on this show. So, what's special about this particular camera bag as it applies to the Twip listeners? Well, we have two main limitations as as, as traveling photographers: we have size restrictions and we have weight restrictions. And the problem with most ba- uh, camera backpacks or bags that can hold up to a 600-millimeter or 800-millimeter lens is that they're really big. So on a lot of airlines, they're already not compliant on size. And also, they have way more padding than you'd ever need. So I think that they're like guys like Lowepro are really trying to appeal to somebody's um, knee-jerk reaction that, you ha- that the more padding, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a certain minimum amount of padding, and then after that, it's just kind of unnecessary. But there's also different qualities of foam padding. So why not put the most, the best quality foam in there? In other words, the most air into the into the padding, and make the make the bag out of materials that are really lightweight and shave all that weight off. So if you look at what can fit in my bag, it, we're at four pounds, but it's equivalent in capacity as a low pro super trekker, which is thirteen pounds. That's three times heavier. So if you're if you're flying on something like KLM which is 12 kilos or 26 pounds, half of your 26 pounds is taken with your bag. Yeah, That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So why not reserve that weight savings for more camera gear? 
or just or just to be able to allow to, to to travel without somebody coming up to you and saying, "I'm sorry, your camera bag's too heavy. We're going to have to check it." And that's yeah. like that's stress. That's well, here, my here's here's devil's advocate. So I've got uh, I've got your bag right here, and I've got a uh, I've got uh, one of the low pro bags. That's it's it's kind of the um, the 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 bag that's kind of fashioned after one of your roller suitcase kind of things with the insert for your camera gear to go in there, um, and so I'm in love with the lightness of your bag, but the versatility of being able to roll that bag around and and take the camera component out of it and make it a regular luggage bag is kind of is is appealing as well. Do you have any plans to do you know to make a a Gura gear bag that has wheels on it or has some of those capabilities? As a small company. Uh, we, we definitely have to move a little bit slower just because it costs so much money to manufacture these bags. But, yeah, we're listening. We're totally listening. But we have to bring out our releases really slowly. And and the main reason why is just the cost of inventory. Th- these bags that we're making, I would venture to say, probably cost three to five, four times more than a low pro just to have manufactured. Mm-hmm. But I feel like our, our camera gear is worth it. And that puts a restriction on me because I'm not a big company. Uh, to come out with bags, you know, big a line of twenty camera bags. Yeah, but yeah. that's okay. I, I think the bag's been well received so far. We're just listening to people what what we should make next. So you know, what I know you've been on lots of the, these adventures. What's the uh, the most perilous situation that one of these bags has been in? Have you like dropped a <laughs> camera bag full of gear into like a uh, a sinkhole or you know a tar pit or something and had no, it protect uh, your gear? We were in a uh, Makoro a dugout canoe in the Okavango Delta last year, and there were two bags in somebody's canoe, and it just started to tip over because he wanted to photograph this this uh, this one spider, <laughs> mm. and it just like came so close to taking a big swim. Oh. I was I was waiting for you to say he was he wanted to take a picture of an alligator, so he was leaning over <laughs> thing almost you know. <laughs> yeah. that, that would be a crocodile. crocodile crocodile yeah no I, as soon as i said that I was like, <laughs> hey, so guys, guys i'll put it out to the to the crew here so we've been talking specifically about africa but what about other places in the world uh for traveling you know andy i know you you go to africa a lot any and and we were talking before about the galapagos but what other places should photographers be considering as you know destinations for that lifetime photo safari trip alex i'll give it to you first well i i, I think that um uh, you know, I, I've shot a couple times in Brazil, which is just really fun. Um, specifically, uh, Salvador Bahia, which is really kind of the cultural. I mean, even if you ask many Brazilians, they'll tell you it's the cultural center of of Brazil. And so, um, there's just it's a very you know target rich environment um, to you know take photos. It's not necessarily a safari. And one of the things I guess I would say in in general, uh, both in Africa and around the world, is that is that we we kind of have this thing like taking you know we a lot of us go out and take pictures of animals but there is a lot of fun taking there's this thing called people um the human beings evidently they are everywhere i mean you know they're not they just always want to talk to you that, that you know yeah you know i mean but it's it's a crazy thing that, that there there are these there are these these creatures called human beings um in africa i know it's hard to think about because we don't see them very often on 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 the new on tv mm-hmm. mostly just see animals but the thing is is that they are but they're fascinating creatures and they look just like us you know and, and anyway so the all i'd say is that there's a lot of one of the things that i enjoy the most uh whether it's anywhere in the world but especially in africa is uh for me uh, taking pictures in villages is just uh, in rural areas specifically um 
for me, that's what that's the part of Africa that really gets into my blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people in general are just amazingly nice, uh, amazingly accommodating. In fact, almost too accommodating. Like we, uh, in certain areas, we know that we have to bring stuff for everyone to eat because otherwise they'll give us like what they were going to eat next over the next week. They'll prepare it because we're here, you know, you know, and, and, uh, and so you have to be kind of careful of that, but, but there is, and, and kids just, you know, love the cameras. And when you start, if you start taking pictures, one of the things that we did a lot is take Polaroids with us because, you know, we're taking pictures of them. We give pictures back, um, because this might be the only picture, you know, that they have, you know, and so, uh, but it's to me, uh, taking pictures of people, um, is, is as rewarding or more rewarding than, than a, a lot of the safari stuff that I've done. So that's the one thing that I would, you know, suggest thinking about anywhere in the world. Yeah. And- you bring that up, and it's funny you mention that because, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time just thinking about wildlife, but uh, I get a lot of people asking me if I'm going to run a trip to Ethiopia just for, uh, for, for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer is, yeah, I think we're, I'm at that point where I want to start expanding it out to do some more cultural photography because that's definitely a real hot spot, especially after Joey Lawrence did his trip yeah. down. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. I have a I have a photo of him uh somewhere out there with a with a bunch of folks. So then so Andy, if you do that, um if you if say you say you go to you lead because there's one thing to lead a photo safari and you're looking for wild animals to shoot and all that. Um it, but if you go to some place like Ethiopia, um this seems like there'd be a lot more concerns in terms of being being sensitive to the population there and you know, you don't want all these, you know, random foreigners coming in taking pictures of of folks kids and they're just trying to get food and all this stuff so how how would you deal with that um i think you have to prep people in in advance you have to be you have to tell them what your concerns are and then you have to you have to take a really small group of people Mm -hmm. and then you have to closely monitor how they interact with people to make sure that they're sensitive to to what's going on and to make sure that it's a true cultural exchange it's not just a we're showing up we're taking pictures and leaving kind of thing yeah, and try to get people hooked in emotionally to what's and going on. We because I, I do this a lot on the road, and one of the things that um, uh, that I do a lot of is is I do bring either food or I bring or I bring Polaroids to take pictures of everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I tend to I tend to work with smaller villages because I just make sure I have enough Polaroids. Or I'm now taking a digital portable digital printer <laughs> on my next trip so that I can actually print the photos that I took you know, through PicBridge or whatever, so that I can um, give them photos of those. Uh, because that's the real exchange for, for many of them that are in, really in the middle of nowhere. You know, that may be, maybe not the only photo they have of their family, but one of the only photos they have. And so that's a, that's a, big, that's a big value proposition for them, um, is to get that back. Um, but definitely look at the trade. The other thing is, is, is that big villages become problems because you, you will gain a lot of attention. And the other thing is, is that I tend to do it very quickly. So I'm, I'm going to be in and out of a village in uh, no, no more than 30 minutes. Yeah. You know, just because there's a lot of, there are a variety of issues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I would love, I would love to do that, to go out there and, you know, because I, I like photographing people more than I do uh, non-people. Uh, but, um, like, in a place like Ethiopia or any other impoverished place, I, I feel like if, and I'd have to get, I'd have to get through this somehow, but I'm thinking, you know, I show up there with a camera bag full of stuff that represents more money than they possibly would generate an entire lifetime you know and i'm there to take photos of them to take back to show to my other rich friends you know so i this how you know, how do you how would someone like me reconcile that or do you just do what you do what you're saying you do alex you go there and you take photos and you give them something or you know how, how do you do that that's that's I, 
I want to go, but that's that's the thing that would be stopping me. I think for me, it, it, it's it's that I I've kind of worked it out at least in my head, and I think that so far the re- response has been really really good when I'm in the when I'm in smaller either families or villages. I mean, sometimes when you think of a village, it's actually just one family that has a bunch of different houses. You know, they, they kind of keep everything separated sometimes. And so, uh, but the thing is, is that I always, when I'm stopping, I know what I'm there to provide them as much as I know what I'm there to provide myself. Um, because if, because I, I feel like if that isn't at least even, um, in addition to it not being as successful, it's, you know, not something I can live with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alex, Alex, uh, are you taking one of those Canon, uh, selfie printers? Um, yeah, that's actually exactly what we're getting for the next one. Do you have one so, of the batteries on them too? Well, we're gonna you can you you can hook up to the uh, car. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. you know, so yeah, the battery won't last very long. So, I mean, Doug, Doug where's just, the where's the next place you're you're planning on uh, heading out to around the world? Good question. Uh, I would like to do a trip to northern Africa, uh, sort of more of the tourist destinations like Cairo. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one we'd like to do. I want to say a, a little bit about just what Alex and Andy were talking about, too. You know, you, it is a challenge. You're going to a third world country and people there are extremely poor. And it can be it can be a challenge for you emotionally because at least it was for us. You know, we would have fairly nice meals uh, preserved and served to us by people who after dinner would very likely, you know, walk five miles and live in a hut that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Alex hinted at, you know, if you stick around for a while or if you go to a place where tourists are coming through, there is a problem. And it is that, you know, you will be surrounded by people who very are begging, who are very desperately want to sell you junk for, for, for money. Um, and you have to sort of, if you can, come to grips with this before you get there. Um, we, we did some things. We visited a couple of schools and we carried with us from the States um, school supplies. Pens, pa- pens, pen. pens, 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 pens. Yeah, pa- we, pads of paper, um, right. co- colorful pencils, and uh, the kids absolutely love that stuff. We took pictures. We ended up, I sent uh, prints back to our driver. Our driver lived in Nairobi. I had his postal address. I knew that he typically visited these same schools over and over. And we were actually able to get, you know, uh, six weeks later, perhaps, some pictures, some photographs back to the kids at the schools. And what we've heard third hand is that they really were appreciated by, by the kids and the families at that point. But it, it's something you have to deal with. It was really hard for my wife, who's a non-photographer, who, who couldn't hide behind a camera a lot of the times uh, to, to deal with that. Yeah. So some you got to think about it, and it, it'll shake you up. I think, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's good too because I'll tell you one thing: after five weeks in Africa, it's really hard to come back to the United States and listen to people complain about anything. pretty much any, anything yeah. Yeah, about <laughs> the like, cost of a latte or something, or or, or, or or that their latte isn't hot. You know, and 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 there's times when I it's for the first week when I get back, I just go. I just keep on thinking in my head. I have to stop listening to them because if I if if I listen to them for one more minute, I'm just going to beat them. You know, you know, just you know, just, <laughs> just you know, I'm just going to. I just can't. I have to walk away. You know, yeah, it, it, you, you you go there. You know, you're you're living in in relative luxury. You're in a tented camp, let's say, which is you know they say you're sleeping in a tent, but the tent is the size of a small house. Mm-hmm. Um, you're 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 fed remarkably good food given where you are. Uh, you know, you go to Nairobi, you go to the large cities, it's different. You can't count that. But once you get out of those cities, you are, you know, you're in a place that is animals and 
people with nothing. And um, just even making that transition in and out of cities is hard. Yeah. So then, Andy, here's one for you. So you see, you, you go on the trip. You know, you've which, by the way, we never got to the cost. I don't think I forgot that. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you go, but you go on the trip um, and you come back. What what do you and your customers typically, how do they share the images out? Do they just sort of look at them or do they, do, they, do you have a facility for them, post them online or how, what's the, what's the next steps after you have the images? You know, usually somebody from a trip wants to uh, act as editor of a blurb book from the trip. So we'll get, you know, 10 or 14 people taking photographs. One person will take the lead and say, hey, I want to do a blurb book. Everybody submit, you know, 20 photographs by this date. And they basically put it together as an editor and then put it up online and everybody buys the book. That's typically the easiest way. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of informal exchange of photographs going back and forth, especially raw files or processed JPEG files of photographs that people took of each other because that's the one thing we don't have on these photo trips ironically is a lot of photographs of ourselves because we're the ones taking photographs back to the um the cost question mm-hmm. most safaris are going to cost you somewhere between i'd say 400 500 a night on the low end to maybe about a thousand dollars a day uh, on the higher end okay. just when you average all the costs out and it just depends on what you you, you need to set a budget first when you can travel, because that may dictate what country you go to, and then you, everything starts to kind of fall in line there because, you know, February in one country may be not so great in another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then all in, if it's a – and how long do your safaris typically last? Mine are typically marketed towards North Americans that have more abbreviated travel schedules. So I'd like to do a trip there and back within two weeks. Okay. So typically that's – eight or nine nights out on safari plus a night that you arrive plus the travel days it ends up being 13 14 days okay got a couple of thoughts on the the scheduling frederick mm-hmm. um from the on the basis of you know what would you do different now that i've done exactly one photo safari um the first thing is people have to understand what the shooting and traveling conditions are and andy mentioned something important we had a van. The vans in, in Eastern Africa, at least, are uh, they're either land uh, land cruisers, total land cruisers, or they're what we were in, which is a two wheel drive converted Nissan minivan. They all have pop tops, so you can you know you can raise the top up so that you can stand, and then you have a uh, a rim around the top where you can put a bean bag and rest your camera. And that is just a spectacular way to shoot because you don't have to crouch down too far. You can move around the van in any direction. As I said, in our case, I was the only photography. I was one of two people other than the driver. So it was great. Um, and he at some point could talk about how many photographers he puts in a vehicle. He may have mentioned that, but I had the luxury of this. I, I would love to have no more than two photographers in a van and have at least, you know, at least two of those. I'd, I'd like to travel. You all, you need to travel in caravan anyway, or more or less, but um, I'd like to have a couple more vans available because things do break down. But the big issue is we covered a lot of ground. We covered a tremendous amount of southern Kenya in three weeks. And we would go typically into a new area. We would drive in. Uh, we might do one shoot that night. 
we'd get up in the morning, we would do one early before breakfast, sort of like going on a dive boat. <laughs> we'd do one before breakfast. We'd do another safari after breakfast. Then it gets generally too hot and the light's too flat anyway. So you, you're in camp. And then you do another late afternoon to get the beautiful light in the late afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, the next morning, we got in the van and we drove. And we drove six or seven hours each of those days. And you have never seen bad roads like the bad roads in Africa. It, it redefines bad roads. And they were brutal. They were brutal on the people. You're exhausted. They're brutal, brutal on gear because it's so dusty. And the one thing that I would do is I would probably cut back on the number of locations we visited, although I loved every one of them and they're very different. And if I could possibly afford it, I would fly. And in our case, what that meant was uh, we didn't fly at all, but I would take a small plane from point A to point B and our drivers would have to endure those roads and they would meet us at the other end. But that's the one change I would make. I would actually visit a few I think we went to seven parks and reserves in, uh, you know, 20 days. And that's and that's a that's a big difference between East Africa and Southern Africa. When when someone says, well, where should I go for my first safari or something like that? I usually say, you know, Kenya or Tanzania is a really good safari 101. And then uh, you kind of figure out if you really like it or not. And then you head down south to like a Botswana, which tends to be a more premium location. And you have to fly between most of your camps because of, of water issues. Mm. Um, and that is kind of solving what you're talking about. All these long days can be solved with a 40-minute bush plane flight. Yeah, and, you know, a seven-hour drive, you, you're not going to do much photography. Well, so and, you- well, and, 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 I, and I, love, I love doing some uh, – um, some driving because I love seeing the countryside. So there's part of me that loves to drive. I drove from – I was with a friend that was driving from Rwanda to uh, – not Rwanda, uh, Zimb- uh, Harare to um, Lusaka. And it was just interesting you know, to, see, to see all those things. But at the same time, we broke down. We, we had a flat tire. And, yeah. uh, we, we were driving – In Rwaha. In yeah. Rwaha in the evening. And it's not a great time to be standing outside fiddling with your – I mean, you know, Rwaha is a pretty dense uh, line population. And when you're in the middle of it and you're broken down, it's just not a great time to be changing your tire. Yeah, we, you were, know, dri- you know, was- we were driving half time. I mean, every other day we were driving just to cover the large territory. So I think Andy has it exactly right. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, back to the whole cost thing, uh, that's a way to economize is, is by driving. And the only challenge with that is that it does expand your, your time schedule more and it, it keeps your cost in check. But, you know, it gets harder and harder for people to start justifying trips that go beyond two or three weeks, it gets more, a little more difficult. And, and I would say though that you know when you, especially I would try to do that to drive a little because you know there is a different experience of the country, um, uh, you know. But I would, but if if I was purely going for safari, then I would just fly everywhere. And if I wanted to see a little bit of the country, I would drive a little bit. I mean, I've done a lot of road trips. Um, What's and, the thing you uh, do first, though? I mean, this is your first, like me, this is a personal question, my first time there. What should I do? Should I be flying around or should I be... See, now my prejudice, my prejudice will be to say that you should drive around so you get, you get a sense of the country, you get a sense of the people, you get a sense of what you're in. Um, that might not be, I mean, that might, probably not everybody's opinion. Um, but I think that, uh, I find that to be, um, as as interesting as the destination. I, I would do a mix. I would do some driving, certainly. But if you're going to be there for two or three weeks, and you want, again, 
it depends what part of Africa you're going to because, believe it or not, Africa is not just one country, as some people think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You mean it's not a city? What do you mean? Well, oh. talk to people say, people say well, where, where, I say, where are you going? They say, Africa. I say, what country? They say, Africa. Yeah. And I, it, it, it blows my mind. Tell me you're going to Pangea. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, I, but I would, uh, Alex and Andy are both right. I think you've got to see these countries. You've got to see the people. You have to interact. You have to see, you know, one thing you realize about driving around Africa, there, I had a revelation about what roads are all about. You go to places where the big thing is the road. People are, they interact with one another along the road. They sell things along the road. Um, essentially, all of their culture converges on roads. Uh, electricity. Uh, you don't get electricity to, place in, uh, to a place unless you first have a road. The road comes in. The road is followed by phone poles with wires on it. And um, so you've got to get around by driving. But, boy, I, I sure wouldn't want to do it again for three weeks. Yeah. All right, guys, we, we want to wrap it up in just a second here. But uh, one question I, I forgot to ask at the, when we were talking about the gear stuff. Each of you went through some of the things that you should bring with you, but uh, but conspicuously, none of you mentioned strobes or bringing a flash or any sort of any sort of man-made lighting with you. Is that by design? Do photographers not bring a strobe with them, or or what? Andy, you want to take it first? Yeah, I'll take it first. Um, so I always tell people bring a flash unit with a better beamer attached if you are into avian photography like if you really enjoy photographing birds because that will make for just better bird photography but other than that i don't recommend it it just it, it, it to me it's 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 most often not done properly and for someone's first safari and they're not really familiar with uh flash for wildlife photography tend to not really recommend it and also some species like big predators like big cats they tend to get a steel eye so like a red eye that we have in humans so it it, it just doesn't work all that often so i, I typically don't shoot it because i'm not a, a hardcore birder gotcha doug what about you what uh, what, what did you bring a strobe with you yeah no? i brought an sb 600 and i used it only around the camp hmm. okay gotcha wow three nikon guys on the on the <laughs> podcast that's a new record alex uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded <laughs> you are I'm, I, I'm ambidextrous. I'll do both. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Same here. Um, so, Alex, what about you? Would you did, when you travel back and forth, do you bring any lighting with you uh, for still photography? I, 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 all I, I have a um, I have a light panel, you know, micro uh, that, that I that I use for both video and still, uh, and it's only for interviewing people. I don't I don't when I'm general shooting, uh, I don't I don't use a flash ever. So I mean, it's not it's not, it's not that I don't use it in Africa. I just don't use flashes. I just don't like them. I don't like the distraction, and I don't like the look. And I, I, and I, I'm probably just that I'm not very good at it. But uh, since I was ten, I just never really used a flash. Got it. I don't don't like it. All right, guys, <laughs> let's let's jump into our picks real quick. Uh, picks of the week. I know each of you have uh, your own listed here. So let's start with the new guy, Doug K. Doug, what's your what's your pick of the week? Well, you know, being the new guy, I had to spend a lot of time on this. I was going to put out there my my hyperdrive, which which I use for backing up all my flashcards. Uh, but my real one is this Kinesis uh, beanbag. What did I say it was called? I, mean, I should look at the exact name. I've got it sitting on my lap right now. Yeah, the Safari <laughs> Sack? Yeah, Safari Sack 1. Um, this is brilliant. You, I got into town. 
I went to a store. I bought two one-pound bags of beans, which I donated to my driver at the end of the trip. <laughs> I was going to say, you could eat your gear at the That's end right. and save on I, weight when I, you go I, home. <laughs> I left them in the plastic bag and put them in this thing, and this was my camera mount for three weeks, and it was brilliant. Very good. That's and my, where, where can folks go to, to get that? Uh, I would just Google for Kinesis Photo Gear. Oh, it's kinesisgear.com. K-I-N-E-S-I-S gear.com. We'll have a link to it, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Andy, uh, do you have a pick of the week? Yeah, I've got two, actually. Um, I'm a big equipment snob when it comes to stabilizing your camera gear. So I I love the new Really Right Stuff uh, TVC33 tripod. It's their carbon fiber tripod. It's atrociously high-end, and it's atrociously cool. Uh, the second thing is the... NovaFlex Quadropod for safari photographers who are going to southern Africa. They need a way to attach their camera gear to an open Land Rover. So this Quadropod has up to four legs, and you can take each one or all off, and you can replace those legs with shorter legs. And if you go to andybiggs.com slash quadropod, Q-U-A-D-R-O-P-O-D, you can see some photographs that I had of it in action that allows you to basically clamp a monopod. When you take the quadrupod, you only put one leg on it, and then you attach it to the roll bar right in front of you. And now you can basically have a big lens without having to handhold it. Wow. Very cool. And what are we looking at on cost for something like that? (laughs) I'm sure sure way too much. (laughs) I think think, uh, that the kit they loaned me that I'm kicking around right now, I think it probably would tap out at around $1,500. It's really expensive, but it's really cool. That's awesome. All right, Alex. Alex, I know you always have a wonderful pick. What's yours? I have a. This is not a not necessarily a uh, a Africa or or safari pick. It's just what I've been playing with a lot, um, and it is a geeky pick. So I want to, you know, I have to pick it with some qualifications. <laughs> so so the um, what I'm is the the Fuji 3D uh, W1. Uh, it's this. Uh, it's a 3D digital camera. It has two lenses, two sensors, two, and it takes pictures in 3D. Now, it takes two whole photos when you pull the trigger, and, uh, and then you can decide how you want to unwrap that, uh, whether you want to make it anaglyph, so red and blue, or whether you want to make it for polarized or whatever. And I just have to say, uh, you know, I don't know if 3D is going to take off or not, but I've had a lot of fun. I, I bought it. Um, uh, and I was trying to get it before I left for Africa because I was like, oh, it'd be really cool to take pictures of, you know, huts in 3D. And uh, it didn't come before I left. And NVIDIA is the only company selling it in the United States on their website. And um, and so I uh, – so I, I, you know, I got it. When, it was waiting for me when I got home. And uh, uh, and I I just have so much fun with it. Uh, it actually has a little 3D screen so you can get a sense of what, what, how it works. It takes a little while to get used to it. Um, it, it but it's – it's just a really um it's more fun than i've had you know shooting for quite some time i mean i, I and i don't it's just it's i think it's just that it's a whole new part of my brain that i'm using to think about because there's so many things that work in 3d that don't work in 2d or things that work in 2d that don't work in 3d and and learning what those are um i found to be a bit fascinating and it's all part of me doing research we're, we're going to do some pro some video projects in the fall in 3d and so i had to kind of uh, have something that I could carry around in my pocket that I could figure out. So it's about $600. Um, so it's like a little expensive for a point-and-shoot. And as a point-and-shoot, it's okay. It's not great. It does shoot video, although the 3D AVI file that it creates is, you know, it's it's really bad. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's just, you know the, but the stills are a lot of fun. And, and you can get these little red and blue, red and blue uh, 
uh, glasses, uh, you know, on Amazon for $2 or $3. I mean, you can get paper ones for less, but you can get little plastic ones for that. And, um, and as I said, there's just something, there's something to it that is a lot of fun, and I think we're going to see more and more of this. And so for those of you who are really kind of ready to geek out, um, I would not suggest they have a viewer that comes with it, and I really wouldn't suggest it. I find it to be uh, a little bit painful to look at. Um, but if you, if you throw some glasses on and you throw a bunch of anaglyphs onto your iPad, they, it looks like you're looking into another scene. It's, it's the craziest feel. Like you're staring into your, into your iPad and you're like looking deep into, a, into another scene. And, uh, and I think my kids, when they grow up, they're going to be glad that dad took a couple photos of them in, in 3D. Yeah. So anyway, that's that. You know, and, and as I said, if, for those of you who are geeking out, there is a camera out there that do it. Um, it is you have to get the Fuji software that actually ships with it is completely useless. And so there's a freeware software that only runs on a PC, so I have to use it in Bootcamp to to um, basically recombine all these photos, uh, these MPO files back into uh, Anaglyph, which is what I've been kind of using. But you learn a lot of things. Like if you're doing Anaglyph, you can't have people wear red shirts, <laughs> <laughs> or they don't. You know, it's just like Wah! you know. But those are the kind of things you don't get until you start playing with it. And so, um, as I said, for those people, those interested in geeking out in 3d photography without wanting to build some kind of crazy rig or or you know wire something together this is all in one little package it's like a little point and shoot you can throw in your can in your pocket and you can take 3d photos and so anyway that's my pick very cool and my pick real quick is uh just a little a little application it's an iphone application from a uh, uh a guest that we have on the show from time to time her name is lisa betney um, she goes. She's on Twitter as mostly Lisa, but she working with. Uh, I think it's a company called. I can't even remember the name of the company, but if you search on on uh, in the iTunes Store for an application called Camera Plus, and that's plus with the as the plus symbol, um, they've come out with a really cool iPhone app that, uh, that that addresses lots of the questions that folks that do a lot of iPhone photography have in terms of. You know, you take pictures, not having them automatically show up in your camera roll and and applying presets to them and, and stuff like that. And it's all inside the camera. And I thought it was pretty timely because um, it, the next version of the iPhone is going on sale, I guess, tomorrow for pre-order um, as this is being recorded. So um, that application should should run pretty well on that new piece of hardware, I think. So that is my pick of the week. It's two. It's like two ninety nine. It's like a gimme. You yeah, have to- three bucks, and it's it's an amazing piece of ki- piece of kit for your iPhone. So, you know, it's it's almost a must buy for folks that do any sort of iPhone photography. All right, guys, we're 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 at the end of the line here. Doug, where can folks go to find out more about you and the stuff that you're working on? I guess the best is my blog, blogarhythms.com. Bloggerrhythms.com. I like that. You got that nice. early, didn't you? <laughs> I, I did. It's been it's been a while. Yeah. Very cool. All right, and uh, Mr. Andy Biggs, where can people go to find out more about you and your the gear that your uh, that your company sells? Yeah, it's uh, andybiggs.com, A-N-D-Y-B-I-G-G-S.com. And I have a link on my webpage to Gura Gear or G-U-R-A-G-E-A-R.com. Excellent. And Mr. Alex Lindsay, as if people don't know where to find you, you want to reiterate it? I'm on the Twitters. <laughs> uh, it's just Alex Lindsay, all one word. And also, uh, you can go to Bordersac, uh, B-O-R-D-E-R-S-A-C. Uh, and you can go to Bordersac.com, and uh, you can see some of my photos from Africa. i got to post a couple more. But um, if you go up there and you'll see some of the trip stuff, uh, you can see some of the stuff I took. Very cool. All right. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, as always, you can find me 
on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. You can follow Twip Log, our blog or the companion site to this podcast. That's at twiplog.com. And also we have a Facebook fan page that you can uh, join and keep up with all the antics of the, the various hosts, etc. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Oh, 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 o